Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Life as a follower of Jesus is a life that is always lived in response. A follower of Jesus does not live life from the from the perspective of assuming that there is a daily checklist that has to be uh, followed, a a daily quota of good deeds that has to be met in order to remain in uh, the good graces of our God. Life as a follower of Jesus is always lived in response, in response to our understanding of who God is and what He has done. We live in response. It, It is God who has made the first move towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us, showing us grace that we had not earned, love that we did not deserve. Forgiveness of sins is something that God offers to us before we have done anything anything to earn it. And in response to that grace, in response to the love extended to us in Christ, we live our lives before God, growing into what God has created, who God has created us to be as we walk with Him, as we come to naturally take on the characteristics of, of our loving Father. And that life of, a, of response is a life that is lived uh, in the meantime. And that reality uh, of living in the meantime can leave us sometimes wondering with, uh, as far as what that response is supposed to look like. Uh, We know what Christ has done in the past, dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead, ascending into heaven. We know that that has happened. We know that God has promised what he will do in the future, that Christ will return and make all things new so that God's people will dwell in his presence for all eternity. And that leaves the question of the meantime. Uh, What do we do in between? Because if we're being honest, that life in between is not necessarily as as exciting. Our day-to-day of getting up, getting ready, getting the kids out the door, going to work, paying the bills, the day-to-day of everything that goes into that is, is not as exhilarating of, as talk of what Jesus has done, dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead, defeating the enemy of death, or talk of the future of God ret- coming to dwell with his people. That life in between is not as exciting. I remember... Uh, when I was uh, baptized as a, as a kid, being a little uh, surprised that it maybe wasn't as, as earth-shattering as I was expecting. Uh, now, obviously, I was a kid. It's not like I had a fully formed understanding of everything that was going on. I knew enough. I knew, I knew that, that I needed to be baptized to have my sins forgiven. I knew that, but I, I, I maybe didn't have as, as, as full-fleshed of an understanding as I do now. I, I went down into the water, I came back up, and I mean, I more or less felt the same. There were no skies parting angelic announcements, at least any that I could see or heard about. Uh, I was still felt the, the same way from everything I could tell. And, and hear me, I'm not making fun of that, I'm not disparaging it or anything like that. I certainly think uh, being baptized was the right decision. I certainly think that it was effective, although I guess you could probably find people who would disagree in my case. But, uh, but at the end of the day, it, it just was not quite as, as exciting as I was maybe expecting. 
And as we come closer to the end of this series where we have been unpacking the blessings of the book of Revelation, we are getting to a point where it is good for us, if we have not already, to think through what our response is. As we've said multiple times over the course of this series, this book is not material to predict the future. It is a message for the present, calling God's people to repent as we recognize who God is and respond to the reality of what he has done in our lives. The book of Revelation calls us to respond, to be changed by what we encounter in this book, to boldly live in the world as Jesus' people in the meantime as we anticipate his return. And yet the specifics of what that life in the meantime looks like might not be as, as exciting as we originally expect, just like me walking down the steps of the baptistry as a kid. I mean, for all the creative uh, symbolism, all the exciting imagery of this book, what it looks like to respond to its message might not be on that level. I mean, Revelation's got dragons and angels and stuff falling out of the sky all over the place. We might assume our response to something like that involves things that are huge and exciting, big and earth-shattering, and yet, at the end of this book, that's not necessarily what we find. We find a call for faithfulness as we live in the time and place where we find ourselves. And that might not be as exciting, as exhilarating as we would want or expect, but it is the proper response to life lived in between the first and second coming of Christ. As we come towards the end of this series, the call from John to the first readers of this book, the call to us today is the same, that we would trust in Jesus and we would trust in Jesus alone. And we see that as we make our way into the last chapter of this book, which will be in uh, both this week and, and next week. Today we'll be right in the middle section of chapter 22. Next week we'll be in the very tail end of this book. But for today, I want to break the verses we're going to look at this morning down into three sections. And I think each of these three sections gives us uh, a command, uh, a word to remember, to practice as we live as God's people in this mean time between the first and second coming of Christ. And those words are to keep, to worship, and expect. To keep, to worship, and expect as we live as people who trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So let's look at verses 6 and 7. John writes that the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. The passage just before this has been the very end of the description of the new heavens and the new earth that this angel has shown to John. And this description is the culmination of everything John has described over this book. It's the future God's people look forward to where all things will be restored and made new. And so, as we come towards the end, we get this emphasis again that what John has recorded can absolutely be trusted. These are not John's speculations as he lives as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos. It's not his best guess on how he hopes the future is going to turn out. These are the very words of God, and therefore they should be listened to as such. And yet there's even more going on with these words uh, than we might uh, recognize at first glance, especially when we read them in the translation we've been reading from this morning. In the original 
Greek, the same words are used here to describe the words of this book that are used to describe Jesus back in chapter 19, verse 11. In chapter 19, verse 11, John sees Jesus returning as this conquering king riding on a great white horse. And in the midst of that description, he says that Jesus is called faithful and true. And the words are translated slightly differently but they are the same words used here in, 20, in chapter 22, verse 6, which you can see on the screen. These words are faithful, trustworthy, and true, just as Jesus is faithful and true. The words of this book can be trusted because Jesus can be trusted. We can trust in this, the words of this book because the God who inspired the words of this book to be written down can be Trusted, And that is emphasized here in verse 6 with this title given to God, the Lord, the God who inspires the prophets. It's an odd title that really doesn't appear that often across Scripture, but the point being made with it is that God is the one communicating through John's words. In the first two verses of this book, we get this progression of how the words of this book have been revealed. In Revelation 1, 1 and 2, it says that this is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And it says that he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And John testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there's this progression from God the Father to Jesus the Son to an angel to John to the seven churches to which John writes. But the key behind it all, the first link in the chain, is God the Father. He is the one speaking. He is the one sending His Spirit to inspire the writing of Scripture. And because that is the case, we put our trust in the words of this book. Not because of the words themselves, but because of the God who communicates to us through these words. Our confidence is not in the words on the page in themselves or, or on a screen as we read them alone. They are, are not in our ability to interpret them for ourselves. Ultimately, our confidence is in the God who reveals himself to us as we encounter him in Scripture. And because we can trust him, we trust in the words of this book. And because the God who communicates to us in this book can be trusted, we take to heart the words at the beginning of verse 7, that he is coming soon. And that's a statement from Jesus that shows up multiple times over the course uh, of this book. Ben uh, mentioned it earlier. It's, it's, a, it's a statement from Jesus that we'll see again in the passage we'll be looking at next week. And, and for that reason, it's worth pausing just a moment to reflect on what is meant by that statement. Because in case you haven't noticed, we're roughly 1900 years past uh, when John wrote these words that Jesus is coming soon. And it's important to remember that across the New Testament, we find this tension around the return of Jesus. Jesus himself says in a passage like Matthew 24, 36, that about his second coming, that only the Father in heaven knows the day or the hour of his return. And so uh, we find places in the New Testament where it seems really urgent, as if it could happen in any given second, uh, like like in this passage here, as John writes. And yet at the same time, there are also places, like Jesus says multiple times in various places, parables that he gives that that there's going to be a long delay before his return and so as we think about this issue we are called to hold all of scripture together when scripture speaks of the return of jesus the focus is always on calling god's people to live in a way that is prepared for this return that could happen at any 
time. And we take that posture because our life with God is not something we look forward to starting way off in the future. It is a life that starts the moment we first say yes to following Jesus. And that life will one day come to complete fruition at the return of Jesus when all things are made new. But we live expectantly in the meantime. Aware of the fact that, life, that the life that is to come, that we currently experience in part, could come to completion at any moment. And a life lived in that sort of way is the life we are being called to in this passage. God has spoken to us so that we might live as his people in the present. He has shown us that he can be trusted. He has promised that he will one day return. And so we live in the present with an eye towards the future, preparing for when we will experience his presence in full, aware of the fact that that day could come at any moment, and yet at the same time remaining faithful to him where we find ourselves in the meantime. And as we respond in that way, we do exactly what verse 7 says. We keep the words of this book. If you remember back to the first week of this series, Fred told us Revelation is a book of prophecy. Not in the sense that it is predicting the future or something like that, but in the sense that John speaks as a prophet, speaking a prophetic message to God's people. And messages of prophecy like this are always calling God's people to repent of their sin and return to a proper relationship with their God. And that is a reminder for us that at the end of the day, this book deals with us. It doesn't just deal with the future. It doesn't just deal with things, people, situations that we don't like. It calls us, God's people, as we read it, to repent of our sin and to return to our proper relationship with our God. It calls us to evaluate ourselves to see where we have gone astray, to see where we have neglected the message of the gospel so that we might come back to our God. And when we do that, the promise is that we will find the blessing and the honor of our God. And that is the point being made to us in, with this blessing in verse 7. When we listen to the words of this book, when we take them to heart, the end result is that the God who is faithful and true and communicates to us across this book will lift us up into blessing, honor, and life with him. So what are the specifics, the words of this book that we are to keep? And we can't go into every single thing that this book tells us to do, unless you all want to be here far longer than I assume you want to be this morning. But we can take some time to look back just on the passages we've looked at over the course of this book and get a sense for what this book calls us to do and what this book calls us to be. In chapter 1, we saw that we are blessed when we read this book aloud, when we take to heart what is in it. In chapter 14, we saw that we are blessed when we die in the Lord because our King has defeated death. In chapter 16, we saw that we are blessed when we stay awake, when we remain ready and faithful, expecting the return of Jesus. In chapter 19, we saw we are blessed when we respond to the invitation God extends to us to come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And last week in chapter 20, we saw that we are blessed through the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus has been victorious over death and therefore anyone who belongs to him also has the opportunity to share in that victory. And next week, at, in the, at the very end of this book, we will see that we are blessed when we wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb and enter into the new heavens and the new earth. We will dwell with our Lord forever. And in the meantime... We are blessed as we keep the words 
that God has given us in this book. And this is another place where our English translations make it a little more difficult to see a connection with an earlier place in the book because the blessing here is very similar to the blessing we saw in chapter 1 in the first week of this series. At the beginning of this book, John says that we would be blessed in reading aloud the words of this book and taking to heart the words written in it. And that word that's translated take to heart in verse 3 is the same Greek word translated as keep here in, in the passage we just read. This book began with John telling us that we would be blessed if we keep the words of this book. And as we get close to the end, Jesus tells us the same thing, that we are blessed when we keep the words of this book. We're ending in the, in the same place where we began, being called to hear the words so that we might be drawn deeper into our life with our God. That is the life this book calls us to. It is a life lived with expectation for that day when Christ will make all things new. But in the present, it is a life marked with faithfulness to the commands of the God who has promised to bless us when we walk in life with Him, when we keep the words we've been given. And as we're called to do that, we are called to worship our God alone. In the next two verses, we get a brief glimpse into how not to do that and what we are called to do instead. And I promise I will spend far less time on the second and third things than I did on the first. That was intentional. So, verse 8 says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. This is actually the second time that John makes this mistake in this book. Back in chapter 19, verse 10, John does the exact same thing. He falls down to worship an angel, and then the angel tells him to not do that because the angel is just a fellow servant of God alongside him and that he should worship God and God alone. And in both occurrences, it's sort of this odd thing, and it interrupts what's happening, and it can cause us to wonder why it gets included, much less why it gets included twice. And there's probably an element there of authenticity. If you're just making all of this up, then there's really no point in including details like this. There's maybe an element of self-deprecation, that, that John's not ashamed to, to uh, admit his faults or something like that. But I think the main reason this gets included in this passage is the command from the angel in verse 9. Worship God. There's nothing wrong or evil about this angel. This angel is not like the dragon that has been leading God's people astray all over the course of this book to worship, to worship him instead of worshiping God. This angel is on the side of good. And yet, the angel is, this angel is not the ultimate good. And this rebuke of John here in these verses is a reminder of that. As good as this angel might be, he's not to be worshipped as God. And that is a truth that can work itself out into all sorts of areas of our lives. No matter how good a given thing might be in our life, if it is not God himself, it is not worthy of our worship. As we live in the meantime, it is absolutely essential we do not get distracted in our worship by those things that might be good but are not the best. And that can apply in all sorts of areas, whether it's our achievements, our status, our reputation, whatever other things there might be in our lives that we look to for our significance, that we look to as assurance that we're okay, that our lives matter, that, that we're uh, 
that we have meaning in this life, it can apply to all sorts of things, and it can also apply to what goes on when we come into this building. Are we concerned with our worship, or are we concerned with ourselves? Are we distracted by our preferences and our desires, or are we coming into worship before our God alone? As we live in the meantime, we are looking forward to when we will experience in full what we currently experience in part. As we live in this time, may we keep our focus on the only one worthy of our worship, the only one who can save us as we trust in Jesus alone. And as we do that in the present, we expect what is to come in the future, which is emphasized again in the last two verses of our passage. John says, Then he, the angel, told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. This detail about not sealing up the words might seem irrelevant, but I think it's worth highlighting compared to the book of Daniel. At the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel has had all sorts of visions and things similar to what John has had in this book. And as he gets to the very last chapter of, this book, he, of his book, he is told twice in Daniel chapter 12 to seal up the words of what he has seen. He's told the visions of what he's seen, they're for the future. He's to seal them up. He's, he's not to proclaim them in the present. They're for the time to come in the future. They're for people who will come after him. And John, if you notice, is told the opposite in these verses. The message he has received has direct relevance for his own day. It is a message for God's people living in his own time, and there is no time to waste. His words need to be taken seriously in their own day if God's people are to hear the message he is communicating in this book. And yet, despite the urgency in verse 10, in verse 11, things are maybe a little more restrained. After the urgency of verse 10, don't seal up these words, communicate them, get them out to as many people as you can, as quick as you can, the time is is near, people need to hear this message. The next sentence is, and then things will just kind of continue as they are. So how do we read these two verses together? Overall, these two verses form a summary of what it looks like to live with expectant hope. Things will continue as they are as this book has demonstrated. If you remember back when we were in chapter 16, we saw that as the judgment of God was coming on the world, the heart behind it was to call people to repentance, to recognize who God is so that they might have a relationship with Him. And instead, those who had already rejected God, when when they experienced God's judgment in part, they simply became further entrenched in their rejection of Him, seeing God's judgment as more excuses to fight against Him. And so this verse acknowledges that reality. While this book exposes the reality of our world, that does not guarantee complete transformation in the immediate future. But just because that is the case does not mean God's people should despair. Revelation makes the true nature of things known to God's people. And even though that might not transform everyone immediately, it should steady us to know that God's word is sure. This verse is not a statement saying that uh, once you decide no one's becoming a follower of Jesus anymore, we must be close to to his return. It is a statement about how this book encourages us as God's people as we live in the meantime, even as 
the message of the gospel might not resonate with everyone. It's been said that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay, and that is what is being communicated there in verse 11. As we live as God's expectant people in the present, our call is to remain faithful to the God who remains faithful to us. Present circumstances might lead us to think God is distant, that he has forgotten about us, and when we are tempted towards those thoughts, the fact that our God is faithful should remind us that nothing could be further from the truth. God is near, even when life is hard, and therefore, we can and we should hold on to Him. As we keep the words given to us in this book, as we worship God and God alone, we live with expectation that the return of our King could come at any time. And that is the encouragement in the midst of the chaos. That is the anchor in the midst of the storm. God is faithful. So we live with the expectation of looking forward. That is what it looks like to follow the words God gives to his people in this book. And that is where this passage leaves us. We have missed the point of this book if it does not involve our own transformation. This passage, this book, is an invitation into deeper life with our God. The goal of everything we do in this building as followers of Jesus in general, the goal of it all is to draw near to our God. Wherever you are this morning, the commands of this book, the commands of this passage are not a checklist to work through in the next week. They are an invitation into life with our God. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.